Dear Father in heaven, we ask that you will join us today. We want our conversations to be of you. We want our minds and hearts to see you more clearly. clearly. We want our characters to be transformed to be like you. We want to experience the unity of your heavenly kingdom, that your kingdom may come on earth and your will be done here, we pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing our... uh, Uh, lesson number 13 in our quarterly worship and the title this week is worship in the book of revelation worship in the book of revelation and when you hear the title of the lesson worship in the book of revelation what comes to mind beasts dragons three angels message any other thoughts comes to mind when you hear that title well, when you think about worship in Revelation, what is the basis? What would be the basis of worship? And we're actually going to spend some time going through, because there's multiple reasons given. But what is the general basis? God is the creator. That's one of the themes given we're going to look at. What else? I mean, isn't, isn't the basis, maybe I'm just being too general, isn't the ultimate basis God himself is the basis, the, who he is, the truth of who he is? I was, I was thinking you asked why we worship him. Yeah. Because he is the creator. And, the, and I guess the point I'm making, you know, it talks about in Revelation how we each have our own song to sing, song of deliverance, song of experience. But even though we have our own journey, our own path, our own deliverance from our own uh, shortcomings and sins, which are all unique to each one of us individually, doesn't the journey of salvation take us all to the same place? It brings us all to the knowledge of the same God. It brings us all to an admiration of the same Creator. So at the end of the day, we are all admiring and worshiping and, and, uh, and appreciating the, the truth about the, the same God and having that experience with Him. Yeah? And isn't, isn't that what the controversy has always been over? That question. So when you think about Revelation, do you think the book of Revelation, over the history of Christianity, has made it easier for most people to see the truth about God? Or has Revelation caused difficulties for people to see the truth about God? What do you think? And, and, and to the degree that Revelation has caused difficulties, to the degree it has, why would that be? What would be the reason Revelation would cause difficulties, if it does? A lot of symbolism. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says lots of symbolism. So do you think when Revelation causes difficulties for people, it's because they get stuck on the symbols and take them too literally rather than understanding the, the symbology and what, it's, what the message behind the symbols mean. Yeah. If you understand the Old Testament well enough, all the symbols are in the Old Testament, and that way we can better interpret Revelation. She said if you understand the Old Testament well enough, then, then it helps decode the symbols of the New Testament, and you don't have as many of those problems. So, and I think that's exactly right. Do we allow the Bible to interpret itself? Or do we come to Revelation with a indoctrinated idea construct, uh, you know, from cradle roll up, we've been taught what it means, and then when we come to read it, we already know what it means, so we don't actually think about what the Bible says. Hmm. Well, let's look at Sunday's lesson. First paragraph. It says, perhaps one of the greatest revelations we have been given of the majesty and power of God has come through astronomy. Most of the ancients had no idea the size and expanse of the cosmos. In the 20th century, with the incredible advances in various telescopes, we have been given a view of the universe that would have baffled most of the ancients. Indeed, we ourselves are baffled by it, by the size, by the distances, by the incredible numbers of galaxies and stars. We barely can wrap our minds around it all. And I thought I'd share a a few little stats that that, uh, we understand at this point in time. Maybe down the road these stats will change, but our sun is about 865,000 miles in diameter. 
865,000 miles in diameter, um, which is equivalent to about 109 planet Earths. So 109 Earths is the size of our sun. You know, it's 93 million miles from Earth. It takes about seven minutes from you know, the light we go outside and see right now left the sun about seven minutes ago. Maybe about seven minutes for it to get here. So the sun burns out, we won't know it for seven minutes. <laughs> it is estimated that the Milky Way galaxy, which, where our solar system, our planet, is located, it's estimated that the Milky Way galaxy contains somewhere between 200 and 400 billion stars in our galaxy alone. Now, now I want you to get your mind around it. So our galaxy, 200 to 400 billion stars. Now, it's estimated that the universe contains between 100 and 500 billion galaxies. So our galaxy, 200 and 400 billion stars. The universe, 100 to 500 billion galaxies. Okay? Each galaxy containing anywhere from between 10 million to 1 trillion stars in each galaxy. Just process that for a minute if you can get your mind around that. So if we just average things out and say, okay, 100 billion stars per galaxy, we'll just average 100 billion stars per galaxy, 100 billion times 300 billion galaxies, well, yeah, how many stars is that? <laughs> you must have done the math. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's more than you can get your mind around, isn't it? Yeah. But let's look at the closest galaxy to, to the uh, Milky Way galaxy. It's the Andromeda galaxy. It's our closest neighboring galaxy, and it's 2.5 million light years away. One light year equals 5,878,625,373,183 miles. That's one light year. So basically, six, one light year, 6 trillion miles. That's one light year. So multiply 6 trillion by 2.5 million, and then you'll get your distance between Milky Way and Andromeda. And that's our closest neighbor. It is absolutely unbelievable when you think about our universe and the size of it. It's amazing. It's, it's awesome. Have, has anybody gone on to NASA's website or watched some of the Hubble stuff and what we've discovered? Or there's, a, there's an IMAX um, movie uh, called The Hubble. Have you seen that? Isn't it phenomenal? Yeah. So as we think about that, the study guide points out that as amazing as the cosmos is, something greater than the cosmos built it. Yeah. And so God is amazing. Yet sometimes you notice how easy it is for us to become so navel-gazing that we think we are all there is. It's all about us. And it's all about whether I get my coffee at Starbucks on time. Or, you know, whatever else. We get so focused on our own lives that we forget how amazing and really how small this little world is. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yes? There has to be a little something else, though. I mean, the ancients, the Babylonians, looked at the stars, mapped the stars, and they were so amazed by it, they started worshiping them. Yeah. There has to be another piece to it. Well, that's the, I think that's the piece we're suggesting. Right. The Babylonians didn't understand that something greater than the stars created the stars. Yeah. But also, we told this in the Desire of Ages, that they, the Magi, uh, who went to see Jesus, 
also saw the glory of God in the stars. Yeah, and I and and that the glory of God in the stars was was that a, a, a special star that led them all the way? A star built out of angels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's one that appeared in the sky that wasn't there before. A new one showed up. Yeah, moved. and moved. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, I don't know if you heard the news, but if you go out in the night sky right now, the brightest thing in the sky, other than the moon, is a supernova, which is two or three times brighter than the North Star right now, uh, that, uh, that you can look out in the sky and see. Some star exploded, and I don't know how far away it is, but, you know, it could have exploded a billion years ago. And we're just seeing it now. We're just seeing it now. All of those galaxies and how many worlds are or inhabited worlds that must be in them, it, it's silly for us to think that we're the only ones in the whole universe. Yeah, she says... When, would God create all of that and just make one little planet? With she you? says it's silly when you think about how amazing and big the universe is. It would be silly for us to think we're the only intelligent life in the universe. Well, the Bible, of course, helps us out with that because it tells us there's other intelligent life in the universe. So, yes, I would think it would be silly to think that. Um, look at Monday's lesson, because, and we're going to pick up on this theme of, of the universe and creation. But Monday's lesson asks us to look at the reasons in Revelation that they worship God. And it gives a lot, several different texts there. So let's start with them and go through. The first one is Revelation 4, 8 through 11. It says, Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, under, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worships him who is forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your, by your will they were created and have their being. A couple of questions. What is the reason here for worship? Worthy of our worship because of what he's done. On this particular text, you are worthy because you have created all things, and you will. And you, I mean, this is the reason in this particular text that they are saying you're worthy because of your your creatorship power. And uh, I'm going to ask the question in just a second. How is this reason for worship under attack as we approach the end of time? How is this just? I'm going to ask that in a second. So think about it. Uh, uh, earlier I said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I thought uh, during church today, I said, what does it mean to be holy? And, um, and uh, maybe a little tongue-in-cheek, it came to my mind, doesn't it mean to be holy that you speak in the King James e- English? <laughs> Dear God, Thou art, we are so thankful for Thee, for what Thine has done for us. And, and uh, I mean, do you notice in prayer, when we want to have holy prayer, we use the King James English? Is it really true? Do they speak in King James English in heaven? Is King James English holier than in regular English? I just, I mean, it came to me because I, I heard prayer today that prayed that way. Yeah. Yes? It also shows your age. <laughs> so if we go back long enough, we'd pray in Greek or maybe Aramaic or Hebrew. Okay. Is his Hebrew prayer more holy than English prayer? No. No. It is to the Jews. Yeah. 
Well, the prayer that's holy is the one that you understand. Isn't that the one that's holy? The one that you understand where their heart is sincere and open and giving and loving to the Lord. Yeah. Okay. So then, then how is this idea of God's creatorship as we approach his second coming, the reason to worship him as creator, how is that under attack? Teaching of evolution. And this is a, a 2006 news report. Nearly 450 Christian churches in the United States, this was in 2006, it's over, I believe, 1,000 churches now every year. Uh, more than 450 churches in the United States uh, yesterday celebrated the 197th birthday of Charles Darwin. The churches say Darwin's theory of biological evolution is compatible with faith and that Christians have no need to choose between religion and science. Some churches sang praises for tall, boiling test tubes in classrooms and labs. Many churches held adult education and Sunday school classes on evolution, and ministers preached that followers of Christ do not have to choose between biblical stories of creation and evolution. A variety of denominations and non-denominational churches, including Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Unitarian, Congregationalist, United Church of Christ, Baptist, and a host of community churches participated. More than 10,000 Christian ministers signed a letter urging school boards across the country to preserve the integrity of science curriculum by affirming the teaching and theory of evolution as a core component of human knowledge. Is God's creatorship under attack? How about in the Adventist church? I'm going to tell you, there's a huge attack coming in the Adventist church. Read Spectrum magazine. And they're, they are, I don't know which side they're on, but they're sure documenting uh, La Sierra's uh, issues and, and uh, the big, big, evidently, the big issue that will probably come to the next general conference and will be uh, our position on creatorship, God's creatorship and creation. They apologized for it, didn't they? I don't know if they apologized for it or not. La Sierra. La Sierra. Oh, the, the university might have, but did the, did the professors? I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't really know. I haven't followed it that closely. But I do know this issue is, is, is raging in the church right now. Do you find it credible that God created life through evolutionary mechanisms? Why or why not? It completely negates the gospel story because if you look at it through an evolutionary, evolutionary perspective, death entered the world before human beings did. And that turns the whole... I mean, that just demolishes the issue of salvation and the reason why we need a Savior. And That's right. I mean, she's, she's exactly right. To me, the, one of the best arguments against this whole evolutionary process, as far as creating, creating goes, is understanding God's law. The law of love. If we've, if we've, if we, as we discuss in here, is a principal design template upon which things were built to operate. The circle of beneficence, the circle of giving that God designed life to, uh, to live upon. And the evolutionary process is driven by survival of the fittest mechanisms. Survival of the fittest mechanisms are not I, greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that, 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 uh, um, uh, that Christ gave his life for us and we will give our life for each other. This is not survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest is I love myself so much, I'll do what I have to to survive, including kill you, that I might live. And so we have two antagonistic principles here. Self-sacrificing love, giving, to promote health, welfare, and others, and watching out for self to survive. And if we say that God created by evolutionary mechanisms, we say he uses the principles of self first and selfishness as his engine to create. This is satanic. I will just tell you straight up. Satan wants us to believe that God is like him. And he's coming in through science to try and help us, to try, to try and distort 
our view of God and, and using science to make us believe that God uses these types of methodologies. And it's just all wrong. Yeah. If it's true, he's not a good God. If he had the capacity from the perspective of theistic evolution to start things in any way and use that method to get us to where we are, he is not a good God. It's, it's absolutely true. Just look at what happens in nature. Now, the reason, now the Bible gives us a completely different picture. Paul says in Romans 8 that nature groans under the weight of sin. All nature groans under the weight of sin. Meaning, and the, and the, and the sin is deviation of the law, lawlessness. That's what sin is, lawlessness, being outside the law. What law? The design, the law upon which life was built. The giving principle. Every breath we take, we give away carbon dioxide to the plants. Plants give back oxygen to us. It's the circle of giving that life is built upon. Lawlessness breaks that principle. I'm going to, my body made carbon dioxide, it's mine, I keep it. I blast back my head, you can't have it. I break the law. Lawlessness, what happens? Death, exactly right. And this principle of watching out for me, taking, hoarding, promoting self, is a deviation from the law and always results pain, suffering, and death. We understand that law, and it's a very testable law. It's very testable. You see those two principles battling it out through planet Earth. Evolutionary mechanisms come along and suggest that that's natural and normal because we can see it through the entire recorded history of life on Earth. We see this mechanism at work. And because we see it at work, we conclude, therefore, it's normal and healthy. It's because we see narrowly. Imagine a, uh, Africa, a village in Africa where everybody's infected with HIV, and it's cut off from the rest of society. It lives in isolation, and everybody's HIV infected. And decades go by, centuries go by, and the kids grow up HIV infected with all the symptoms, all the signs, all the diseases of HIV. And then one day a naturalist rises above, amongst them and begins evaluating life, and they look at the recorded history of this village. And these symptoms have always been there. Might they conclude that this is normal? This is the way life works. Okay? Recorded history has been post-fall. We have been infected with this principle since recorded history began. And thus, when we look at recorded history, we always see the infection there, unless we have an inspired source that gives us a window of what it was supposed to be. And that's, of course, the life of Jesus Christ, the, the Bible, the inspired record. How do we then explain what I just said a moment ago? Supernova, maybe exploded billions of years ago, and the light is just now reaching us of the supernova. Good, solid scientific evidence that the universe is billions of years old, but the Bible talks about creation six to 10,000 years ago. How do we reconcile those facts? The morning star sang for joy. I like to think that when uh, God created the earth, there were other worlds out there. And uh, they all, all the angels and all the created beings shouted for joy for this new planet that God created. He's quoting uh, Job chapter 38, verse 4. He says, when the, when, when the foundations of the earth were laid, the morning star sang for joy. Now, one of the, the reasons we've had this difficulty that I've just put out there Wow, the, the science says the earth is billions of years old. Uh, we have uh, rocks on earth with radio, with radio dating um, that suggests that the, the bedrocks of earth are billions of years old. We have this, the light from the cosmos coming suggesting the universe is billions of years old. We have the scripture suggesting that life was created six, 10,000 years ago. That's life on this earth. Yes, and the mistake we've made is we've made the mistake that Genesis is an account of creating the universe never says that because Job gives us information that in fact there was life in the universe when the foundations of earth were laid. 
Okay, so no, the universe, so the, the way you reconcile this is understand God created his universe billions of years ago. Billions of years ago. Now, I, we don't know for sure, but I ha- have this idea that he, over the course of unfolding time, just kept building in parts of his universe, just kept building, just kept building. And then when the war began in heaven, and allegations from Lucifer against equality with Christ, it says in, in uh, the scriptures in Colossians 1.16 that all things were um, made by him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Christ is the member of the Godhead which creates through which the Godhead creates. Why? I think to make a separation, a distinction between Lucifer and Christ. Wait, 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 several hands. Let me finish this, this, lay this out for you. And so we read in Genesis chapter 1 that the earth was dark, void, without form, and the, the, the Greek Old Testament is abysmos. It was a great dark black void hole in space from which light did not exist. Well, I, my personal belief on this is that the universe was created. And in one little section of the Milky Way galaxy, there was a black hole in space. And God said on day one, let there be light. And the black hole dissipated. And the mass that was at the center of the black hole, God used to create our solar system that had already been in existence when he created the universe billions of years ago. And so when he says, let there be light, the black hole dissipates, the light of the rest of space now can travel here because it wasn't here before. And on day four, he says, sun, moon, and stars be created. Sun, moon, sun, our sun, our moon, and Venus, Mercury, Mars, the stars of our solar system. He created on day four. And now we have a reconciliation between Job chapter 38 where the morning stars were already in existence, the universe being billions of years old, uh, the black, dark abyss in this part of the space, uh, the, the bedrocks and things of Earth being billions of years old because they were created billions of years ago, yet terraforming, terraforming, life, life-making on planet Earth, made six, 10,000 years ago. All fits. Now some hands. You answered my question. Yeah. Okay. My point was the Earth was void without form. It was still matter. It, yeah. It's, it's just not a quantum leap to think that there was matter didn't exist. It was just empty without form. Yes. This might be kind of a far-fetched question, but if the universe was created so long ago before the Earth was created and sin only exists here on Earth, then why is there destruction in the universe? Why do stars die? Why are there asteroid belts and things like that? Do we assume that those things are actually, when we look at that as destruction, we don't know what's actually happening in that part of the universe and the purpose of it. It could be fireworks. It could be growth. I mean, really. I mean, we, we, don't, we can't see the impact it's having all over those places. We don't see the purposes of it. I, 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 yeah. Don't they say the universe is expanding? Anyway, I mean, things are continuing to grow and, and get bigger. Not smaller. Yeah, I, I think that science and, and astrophysics and physics um, knows very little of what they think they know. If, you, if you've just read the literature over 10 years, it's changing every day. Every day they, they contradict stuff they said was for sure, for sure 10 years ago. Um, now they've discovered dark matter, which they can't see. They don't know where it's at. They can't measure it. 
but it's what uh, it's the predominant type of matter in the universe that uh, holds the universe together. And they get that through mathematical calculations, yes. Isn't that what science is? Science does change. Sure. Medicine changes. No, I have no problem with that. I just have a problem with if they were to come along and say with certainty, we know for sure that God doesn't exist. We know for sure that um, how we got here, and this is what evolutionary theory is based on. And, and, and by the way, call them on it. What they'll want to do is they'll want to talk midstream. They'll want to talk about um, uh, microevolution, what, what I would call adaptation about how we do adapt to environmental changes, our gene expression changes, we will adapt from generation to generation, mutations will occur, but most of the changes are actually um, epigenetic changes, not sequencing changes. Anyway, these adaptations occur because God designed us to adapt. He designed us to change based on experience. That's why when Adam and Eve sinned and their children were born sinful, because he built into the design that they had the capacity to change themselves based on their choices and experience and pass that change on to their kids. It's all part of the design. So this type of change is all normal. It's all part of it. Okay? What, what, so they'll jump in midstream. They'll start documenting these changes that you can see in nature, and they'll say, see, evolution is how life came. So wait, wait, but how did life actually get here? Well, here's how it got here. Back billions of years ago, there was nothing. There was no time. There was no space. There was no energy. There was no mass. There was no matter. There was nothing. And from that absolute nothing, there was an explosion from which we get all this. That's their theory. What, what, what exploded? Nothing. That's their theory. And you find that more credible than an intelligent being designing? So, and you can take him to, to things like, um, anybody watch Jeopardy? Remember Watson? Watson, this IBM supercomputer that competed against the human brain. Watson takes up a, a room about the, half the size of this room, a 70 um, a super, um, super tower processors with, I can't remember how many tens of thousands of cores that it has. Um, and it, it won on the Jeopardy thing. But it actually holds less data than the human brain, processes slower than the human brain. And the human brain is about three pounds, about this big. And Watson can't walk and talk, can't see, smell, taste, feel, can't move around. You know, the human brain is, which do you think is more complex, Watson or the human brain? How much more complex do you think the human brain is, about this big, can do more than Watson? Infinitely more complex. How many believe Watson came after an explosion of nothing? <laughs> you see, my brain came, which is more, infinitely more complex. It took a design. Somebody intelligently built our brains. This is not a, a real astronomical leap unless you live in a world of denial. So um, I was going to go into um, carbon dating, but I don't think we have time because I want to move on. Um, but I'll just say carbon dating, the whole idea of carbon dating is based on false assumptions. The false assumption being that carbon... 14 has always been in a constant state and, what, and uh, that we have currently today. So 5,000 years ago, they had the same amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere that we have today. If that assumption is false and they had significantly less, everything would appear tens of thousands of years older. And that's the bottom line. Okay, Revelation 5, four, uh, 8 through 14, gives us a different reason for worshiping God. And it talks about the lamb that was slain Worthy is he to receive our worship. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. 
And what did the lamb that was slain receive? Power. Wealth and wisdom. Power, honor, and glory. What connection do you think there is between the lamb being slain and his worth to receive power and honor and glory? What connection is there between those two? And how is this reason, now this is what, this is what we're going to do, every one of these reasons. We worship God because he's creator, that reason is under attack. Every one of these reasons in the end of time is being come, has come under attack. And I want to point out these attacks. So why, first off, is, is it important for us to recognize the lamb that was slain is worthy to have power? Yes. He's safe to trust. Thank you. You know the old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. And one of Satan's allegations against God was God has no power. No. God is powerful, but he's untrustworthy. He abuses his power. This is one of the allegations. Christ is worthy because think about what was revealed. In John chapter 13, it says that all power was given to Christ. And the very next thing he did is he got up and washed a bunch of dirty feet. Think how he uses power. Now, on the cross, was Christ like the two thieves? Once they were nailed to the cross, could they do anything? No. Was Christ powerless, or could he have, if he so chose, did he have power to come down from the cross? Yes. Not only of his own power, could he have called from his father 10,000 angels to come deliver him if he wanted? Yes. Could he, if he thought it, wipe them all out? See, what does it tell you about the one who receives power that he didn't even have the thought in his mind to hurt those who were killing him? Can you trust him with the power? It's amazing, guys. He is worthy to have the power. I promise you, you wouldn't have wanted me to have that power. (laughs) Amen. That's right. (laughs) Okay? That's right. My nephew said double amen. (laughs) Okay? You would not want me to have that power. And I wouldn't want any of you to have it. The reality is we would be corrupt with it. But he's proven he's absolutely worthy with the power. So how then is this reason? See, we've already looked at how his creatorship is coming under attack. As we approach the end of time, how is his worth demonstrated at the cross to have power coming under attack? By explaining the cross in such a way that it makes it look like he's arbitrary and demanding. Even worse, by explaining the cross in such a way that makes it appear that God executed a son on the cross. That God uses his power to kill. That God is the source of death. This is what's taught in almost all of Christianity, including in Adventism. Yes? It also makes Jesus look like a different being than God is, and therefore what we see in Jesus, we don't attribute to God, and we're afraid of God, and we don't see how they're exactly the same. Exactly right. Exactly right. We see it through the lens of Roman, the Roman system of authority and government, how Rome governed with an imperial governor who was divine, dictating and controlling and setting up laws. And if you deviated, the imperial army would enforce those laws and punish. And that whole Roman idea of rulership was transferred into Christianity when Constantine converted And we have looked at God through that lens of Romanism. And we see God as the great imperial divine creator who rules from his throne in heaven and who imposes laws and has a divine army of angels to enforce his laws. 
But he sent his son so that all the sins could be piled on him and he could punish all the sins on his son and kill his son at the cross. And if you accept that legal payment, then he won't punish you. It's twisted. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4 says that we esteemed him. We considered him. Some verses say considered him stricken and smitten of God. That's what we thought. Isaiah prophesied he'd come, he would take our iniquities upon himself, he would suffer for us, but we would think God was doing this to him. And that's exactly what has been taught for almost 2,000, I guess 1,600 years now we've been teaching this. And part of, I'm going to just tell you, part of the mission of this movement was to set the record straight and break us free from this type of thinking, to see the truth about what Christ actually accomplished. So Revelation 7, 9 through 12 gives us another reason for worship. 9 through 12. Redemption. He saved the human race. We worship him because he's creator. We worship him because of his self-sacrificial character that he's safe with power. We worship him because he's done what's necessary to save sinful mankind. That we worship him. How has... How has this come under attack? And I'm going to suggest it's connected to the one before, that it's come under attack. He isn't only the Savior, he's also the destroyer of those who won't love him. Christ receives power to use a rod of iron to rule the nations. Yes? Also, it depends on how you see salvation, whether it's truly a healing and, re- and recreation, or whether you see it's just a... a a forgiveness and just a blotting out of, of something else that's, you know, something done to himself. Yeah, he says it depends on how you see salvation. Do you see it as a, as a healing, transforming, regenerating process that our Savior has, has made possible for us through what he has achieved? Or do we see it as some other thing where maybe a, a legal pardon or records? Today in our church service, they read Psalms. Um, I can't remember which Psalm it was. Maybe you guys can remember the one. But it talks about how the, the sins are, are taking, as far as the east is from the west, out of the book of records. Is that what it says in the psalm? Away from us. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west from us. Think that through. What is traditionally taught is that he throws them and cancels them out of the book. As far as the east is from the west. No. He removes it for our character. He removes the sinfulness, the infection of sin. Our warped characters, he heals and transforms. And so we are no longer steeped in selfishness. We have new hearts and right spirits. The law is written on the heart and mind. We're recreated in the inner man. We become partakers of the divine nature. The heart is circumcised by the spirit. He throws sin out of our hearts forever. That's what Christ has done for us. But as Wendell suggested, we could miss, miss it all and say, no, 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 no. That's not what happens. Instead, what happens is there's a courtroom scene and he actually uh, changes what's in the record book. Well, how else is this? This is uh, from March 5, 2006. Uh, Somebody you might have heard of named Louis Farrakhan. This is what he says. We are living at a time which was described by Jesus in these words. Quoting out of Matthew. If those days were not shortened for the elect's sake, no flesh would be saved. We know that we have entered that period when we witnessed the tsunami killing over 200,000 people in Asia, an earthquake in Pakistan, storms raging through America, fire on one side, water on the other, snow, cold, ice in between. 
at a town hall meeting in New Orleans, I pointed out the high black-on-black crime rates, rebellion against the will and law of God, and love of partying and acting foolish and that prevails in the city. I asked them if they did not think that Allah, God, would handle the city as he did the two ancient cities that lived in rebellion. I told them that Allah, God, brought a punishment to America, but he also brought a punishment to black people. And that punishment is going to spread. There will be many more disasters that are that we are not prepared for in this country. This country glories in its cities and skyscrapers, but God is going to bring them down. We are, um, we are going to know that he is God. The Bible says that in his second coming, he will have a sword dripping with blood in his hand. He is not coming back to teach. He is coming back to kill the enemies of his teaching and set up a new government. Notice he's talking about Jesus. Yeah. How has this idea of Christ saving us been twisted? It turns him in to the cosmic killer. He's coming to kill. If that were true, I would hope for total eternal annihilation. Yeah. Yes. I was just going to say, you know, several years ago, I was teaching 7th and 8th grade Bible. And on the front of the uh, curriculum material, they had a picture of Christ coming and with a very uh, ugly looking face. (laughs) I pictured it coming, just like you said, coming to kill, to destroy. And I tore every time those pictures came in, I tore every single one of them up so the young people could not see that picture of Jesus. Good for you. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do, do we... I mean, think the message through here. Jesus loves me. This I know. But if I don't love me, love him, he will kill me so. Yeah. These three things, God is creator and, and being worthy of worship because of that. God being self-sacrificing, giving, trustworthy with his power, and God having a heart to redeem simply also wins his case in front of the onlooking universe and shows Satan to be what he is like. Absolutely. Absolutely. And do you see how all these points are coming under attack? Revelation gives us reasons showing the case of the great controversy and showing us that Christ has answered all the questions as we go through. Let's look at the next one. Revelation eleven fifteen through 19. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there was loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their face and worshipped him, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and with his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Why are we worshiping him here? Because he destroys the wicked. <laughs> That's why I wanted to read this one to you. I wanted you to hear it. We got first off, we worship him because he's creator. We worship him because he's safe with power. He won't abuse it. We worship him because he redeems the lost. Now why are we worshiping him here? Notice what it says. Okay? It says, 
um, the very first one, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. What does that mean? What's the kingdom of the world? Kingdom. What's kingdom mean? Rulership. Rulership. Uh, government. What is the methodology, government, principles, law of the world? Selfishness, survival, the fittest. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. What's the kingdom of God? So what it's saying is that this is the time when selfishness is destroyed. This is the time when survival of the fittest is eradicated. This is the time when God's kingdom, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the time when love eradicates selfishness in the world. This is the time when love heals all that's been broken. That's what this is saying. I think this is particularly relevant as we face the 10th anniversary of 9-11 and what we're thinking about and how we're processing that and what we're displaying tomorrow. Yes, yes. And so here we have the kingdom of God coming. It eradicates selfishness. It eradicates survival of the fittest. It eradicates disease. It eradicates death. It eradicates pain. It eradicates crying. It eradicates heartbreaking. It eradicates all this evil that we see. Is this not a reason to rejoice? This is what it's saying. We're rejoicing now because not only has he revealed himself as creator, not only is he self-sacrificing and loving not and safe to have power, not only did he do what was necessary to save those who were lost and broken in sin, but now he brings an end to the pain and suffering and death. What do we do with some of the language here? And I was going to say, has this idea been corrupted? How is this idea being distorted? Well, you notice it used the word judgment in here. Use the word judgment. The time has come for judging the dead and rewarding the servants of God. How has it been corrupted? God's judgment determines who will be saved and who will be lost. We have a courtroom. We have a heavenly courtroom. Cases are being called up. Names are being... Satan is there to accuse. Christ is there to defend. Records are being investigated. They're weighing the pros and the cons. They're determining who will be saved and who will be lost. Hmm. And then God... After the, the, the courtroom jury, 24 elders and those who sit on the, the uh, nominating committee, um, decides how much appropriate punishment is appropriate, and God will use his power to torture and punish those appropriately for their sin. And you think I'm making this up? This is what's taught in the church. Our church. The Greek word in this passage for judging means all the following. Determining. Selecting choosing to separate to pick out so the time has come for god to separate the dead to pick out from the dead those who are healed and those who are not it is a time for separating the sheep from the goats the wheat from the tares it is not a time to determine from his perspective it's my decision you are going to be a goat and you are going to be a sheep No. Each one of us is freely offered remedy. It would be no different than all of us here have been infected with HIV and we're all terminal and there's a free remedy offered to all of us. Some of us in this room have taken it. Some of us in the room have not. All of us claim to have taken it. What's necessary to determine who's actually taken it and who hasn't? Will, will, will it be some, some, something outside of us that determines that or will it be our own condition 
that determines that. It will be our own actual condition. Those who have accepted Christ have a new heart and right spirit. The law has been written on the heart and mind. It's no longer their sinful self that lives, but Christ lives in them. They have new motives and principles. They've been transformed, and they've been healed in the inner man. This is what happens in this age. Those who've claimed to have accepted Christ but have not, but closed their hearts, lived in selfishness, their hearts remain selfish. It's their own condition that determines this. And it will be revealed. In this and it will be revealed. This is what this is what it's talking about. So he basically separates the two: those who've accepted healing and those who've not. That's what it's talking about. Yes. Christ gave the the parable of the fishes caught in the net, and they were separating them: the good from the bad. There you go. The fishes they were either good or bad. Yeah. Does God's judgment determine whether you've accepted Him or, or not accepted Him? No. no, our decision to accept him or not determines whether we have been reconciled to him or not. It's our decision. He gives it to us. Regarding those who destroy the earth, the uh, word there means to consume, to put an end to, to remove sinfulness from the earth, but it doesn't say how he will do it. It just says he'll do it. So the question remains then how? And this is whether we do, do we use the rest of Scripture to enlighten us on how God cleanses, removes, consumes, destroys those who destroy the earth. This is out of uh, Desire of Ages 107, quoting Hebrews 12.29. To sin or ever found, our God is a consuming fire. In all who submit to his power, the Spirit of God will... In all who submit to his power, the Spirit of God will consume sin. We submit to his power, the Spirit of God comes in and consumes Sin. But if men cling to sin, they become identified with it. Then the glory of God, which destroys sin, destroys them. What do you hear in this passage? What is the cause for death? Is it the fire of God's presence that causes death? Or is it the retaining of sinfulness in one's character that causes it? Because if it's the fire of God's presence that causes death, then how do we explain Daniel chapter 7? where God takes his, takes his throne and rivers of fire come out before him and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands stand in this fire. How do we explain the Mount of Transfiguration when Christ in his human body still subject to death because he will die on the cross shortly? Stands in this fire and he is as bright as the sun, but he's not hurt. How is he not hurt? He has no sin in him. He's not sinful. Is the fire harmful or is it sin that's harmful? You see, the Satan has twisted our thinking again. He's gotten you thinking. He's gotten Christianity thinking that we don't need to fear sin. We need to fear God who will kill us for sin. Again, the truth about God coming under attack. Yes? That's why the glory of God was uh, uh, hidden when Christ was on the cross. This is why the glory of God was hidden when he became incarnate. Had Christ come with the glory he shared with the Father um, before his incarnation, he would have destroyed those he came to save. This is what it says in Zarvages. Revelation 15, 1-4. It says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Set beneath the sun of my flesh, last because with them God's wrath is complete. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing before the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name, they held hearts given them by God and sang the song of Moses and the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of all the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? 
For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What is the reason for worship in this passage? Because <laughs> God will make them pay, baby. <laughs> is that the reason? That's what some say. The holiness of God. She says the holiness of God. Notice, yes, God's holiness is listed here. God's justice, justice, we should talk about what that means. God's right ways, notice, his right ways, his right acts, the right ways of doing things. And God's wrath is completed, the completion of his wrath. Hmm. How have these ideas been distorted as we approach the end of time? God's wrath is a vindictive act towards us rather than an act of mercy and love of letting us have ultimately God will step back and say your choice I will honor so she said it's been disordered by God's wrath being an active process which he inflicts pain, suffering and torment and punishment upon him God's justice being like human justice after 9-1-1 George Bush stood up and said we will bring that to justice what did that mean we all do it, man. What do you mean? We will go out there and love them so much, we will win them over to friendship. <laughs> Is that what that meant? No. no, it meant we will hunt them down and we will kill them. That's how, is that how we view God's justice? I would suggest to you that's how Satan wants us to view God's justice. That's how many view God's justice. And the seven last plagues result from God using power to the pain. Every one of these distortions I just told you, I have Adventists email me passionately and vehemently supporting those views. God's wrath, we must do this. God's justice requires him to inflict pain and torture. It's not fair for God of justice to allow Hitler to suffer the same consequence of eternal death as a college co-ed who just never accepted Jesus. God has to use his power to perform a miracle to torture Hitler for days and days to make him pay for what he's done. I'm telling you, it's, it's wrong. Let's look at biblical evidence. First off, Romans chapter 1, starting verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed. Active present tense in the Greek. Paul's talking in his day today. God's wrath is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then he goes down and tells you six times in the next few verses why God's wrath comes. And he tells you he comes every time. Because they suppress the truth of God. They exchange the truth of God. Oh, am I dying here? Okay. Okay. Now we're back on. Okay. He says the... Uh, this, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They change the truth of God for a lie. They pre- prefer images made with their own hands to the truth about God. And therefore, he sa- tells us in verse 24, 26, and 28, three times he says, therefore, because they won't accept the truth about God, because they prefer images made with their own hands, therefore God does something to them. Therefore God lets them go. Therefore God gives them up. Therefore God sets them free to reap the consequences. So think this through. You are insistent on breaking the law of respiration, of rebelling against God, and you tie a plastic bag on your head. And we just stand there and watch and let you go. To reap the consequence of your choice. That's God's wrath. Now, God doesn't bring his wrath until there is no hope left of turning you away from that course. And that's why it says in Hosea, Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. He only lets go when there's no hope of freeing you 
from your self-destructive course. Yes. It's interesting how the message version translates this. He says, and then all hell broke loose. (laughs) And then all hell broke loose. Well, okay. So let's look at the seven last plagues then. Understanding God's wrath, the seven last plagues coming as a result of God's wrath, it's simply God setting the earth free. We've chosen to rebel against God. We don't want his presence anymore. Human beings have closed the heart to the spirit. The spirit dwells where on earth? What is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The hearts and minds of men. As billions of human beings close their heart, become hardened, become self-centered, refuse the Holy Spirit in their lives, the Holy Spirit is suddenly withdrawn. God sets earth free. And what happens? Revelation 7, 1 through 3 says there's an angel who came from the east to said to the, said to the four angels, holding back the four winds of strife, the angels who have been given power to harm the land and the trees and the sea. So these angels, these four angels, have been given power to harm. And the angel coming from heaven, telling him to do something. Hold, hold, hold until the servants of God are sealed on their forehead. So how is it that these angels harm? By no longer holding back what they're holding back, by letting go. Just like Romans chapter 1, God let them go. This is God's wrath. This is what happens. And then I read out of manuscript releases, page 14, because some will say revelation. No, God, because it says an angel from heaven came with a bowl from God's right. And this is God doing this. Listen to what Ellen White says about that very thing. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way, they place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been the object of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be, for Satan has come down with great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short, and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we have ever dreamed of. Manuscript release, volume 14, page 3. How many times? I mean, you understand the battle between Christ and Satan. Satan has been constantly trying to get us to conceive of God with his character. And we treat it this way. We teach that God is doing this stuff when it's actually God setting people free to reap what they've freely chosen. He does that over time. God works on our hearts, you know, for a period of time, brings us around in circles, so to speak, until we realize where we're falling short. Or until we so harden the heart that no more truth will have any impact on us. Right, that time could come. Yeah. But he still keeps working on Uh, it before that time. He keeps working until we cross the line where no amount of truth and no amount of love has any impact. This is, this is when we, see, if we persist in sin, we persist, persist in rebelliousness, we persist in selfish living, we actually sear the conscience. The conscience becomes seared. We warp the reason. We actually damage the very faculties that God gave us that are sensitive to the movements of the Spirit of God. And if we persist in that pathway until they are completely destroyed in us, there's nothing more God can do to reach us. We're beyond his reach. That's when he lets us go. You know, what they were talking about the reasons why we should worship and as evidenced by those texts. And one of the texts was Revelation 15, which we went over a little bit. But in Revelation 15, 4, it says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you. 
for your righteous acts have been revealed. There's righteous acts, but it's also that he has revealed. Yes. And so that's a cause of worship too, is that he has taken the, the trouble, the effort, the energy and whatnot to reveal truly who he is. That's awesome. And of course, the ultimate revelation being Jesus. The ultimate. Yeah, that's great. We have one more we're going to try to get to. Revelation 19, 1 through 5. It says, After this I heard a sound like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries and has avenged and has avenged on her the blood of his saints. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Reason for worship here. Judgments are true and just. Yes. All questions have been settled. The beast and its system, the lies, the distortions have been exposed. The, the, no one is deceived anymore. Everything is set right. God's righteous ways are understood. The lies, distortions, the false system stands open and corrupt. And how has this been under attack? Um, So that, 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 and we don't have time to go on that one because we're already a couple of minutes over and I have one more other point I want to make. But yeah, um, and we have, a, we have this on our blogs on our website. If you want to go and look, uh, look up on our website, um, uh, the question of punishment, part one, two, and three, we deal with the whole thing about burning and, uh, and the fires and the eternal fire and all that stuff. It's all evidence-based. So it's all there. But read the blog I put up, uh, put up this morning because a group of former Adventists have been putting up a, a journal that suggests that the great controversy is not right. It's a, it's a big lie. It's a big fraud made up by Ellen White, and it's not biblical. And they suggest that the, that the great controversy theme causes a disparity in the Godhead to see God as, as punitive and Jesus as loving. It suggests that it diminishes the, the divinity of Christ. It suggests that it undermines the full atonement of Christ. Um, it it, 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 it uh, suggests that it's not, it's not biblical. Read the, read the blog because you're going to find that all those allegations are wrong. This is one of, the, one of the attacks at the end of time. To try and turn our mind away to the true issues of, of Scripture, which are always bad over the nature. We war against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. Second Corinthians 10.5. Yes. But if you teach the great controversy from the perspective that we have been teaching the great controversy, they're right. Yeah, but that's not their point. If you actually read their point, that's not their point at all. Their point is the great controversy doesn't exist. Their point, there was no controversy in heaven. It was just straight-out rebellion. Their point is that there was no competition between Lucifer and Christ. That's a big lie. Okay? Their point, is, and if you, take it to, if you take it from what they say, that the, and their, their position is the angels always knew Christ was fully God. There's never a question of that in their mind. Really? So Lucifer stands up in heaven and says, I am a created being with finite abilities and subject to death. Jesus is fully divine, pre-existent, eternal, all-powerful, infinite, um, but follow me. And a third of them did. Does anybody find that credible at all? And the Bible, and the Bible actually doesn't even support that. So if you read the blog, you'll see the evidence for that. It's, so our reasons for worship. God is creator. God is, God is self-sacrificing. will never use his all-power to hurt his creatures. 
God did through Christ what was necessary to save those of us who, who awoke as babies on planet Earth in sinfulness that we never chose. He provided a remedy for our condition. He is going to bring an end to pain, sickness, death, suffering on planet Earth. His ways will be proven right so that all eternity future, the questions will never result in a rebellion again. And he's going to leave people free to experience the choice that they freely choose. This is what we worship him for because of who he is. Um, and then in, i got I got to close with this. Tuesday's lesson talks about the first paragraph in Tuesday's lesson. It says... Um, it says, from the introduction onward, we have seen that the final end-time crisis will center on the question of worship. The issue of worship is not a small matter. The eternal destiny of souls hangs on it. The crucial question unfolds from Revelation 13 and 14. And bottom line point is, what method does the beast system use on planet Earth before Christ comes? Coercion, threat, intimidation. No one can buy or sell, save in the mark of the beast, and ultimately imprisonment and threats of death. What method does common Christianity and Adventism itself teach God will use? I love you, but if you don't love me in the end, I will be forced to punish you and kill you. Coercion and threat. Where do you think that idea comes from? And I'm going to suggest to you it's a lie. God does not say that. He says, I love you. It's what we read out of Romans. I love you. And if you don't let me heal you, the wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. You will die. Your condition is incompatible with life. You, your condition is terminal. Let me heal you. I don't want to see you die. Please let me save you. But if you insist and you refuse the remedy, I won't force it. But in the end, you will suffer and die because sin is terrible. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us the evidence. You have given us the reasons. Revelation is rich for all the good things that you've done. The enemy is active, though. He's trying to twist everything so that we won't see your good character. Instead, we will think you are like him. Free our minds from these distortions, Lord. Free our hearts. May we love you, and may we be effective in going out and freeing other minds. We want this message to go forward to lighten the world that you will come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen.